Welcome to the Prize of Possibility podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mitch Ablett. I have a strong belief that the greatest prizes in life are hidden in plain sight. They are the nuances, the nooks and crannies of everyday moments that are easily missed. Join me in these conversations with authors and influencers and researchers to miss fewer of them, to truly claim these prizes. All right, everyone. I am so excited to have my next guest on the show. I'm here with uh, Shelly Tagelski, who I've been very much looking forward to meeting in person. We, we were just chatting that we've been in the same orbit for a while now, and uh, both of us have done uh, work with Mindful Magazine in the past, and uh, we both are obviously fans of and practitioners of meditation and mindfulness-related uh, work. So I'm super excited to have you on the show, Shelly. And I, I have I have to, I was just telling her, I have to tell you guys the, uh, this is the best way I could come up with to introduce uh, Shelly. Uh, this is from her website. She's a mindfulness teacher, a community organizer, a philanthropist, an author, a self-care activist, which I love that, public speaker, former corporate executive, mother, wife, sister, daughter, friend, skater girl, and mind ninja, which I, I, I think I have to hear what that means. But uh, <laughs> she's the author of a great book. Um, when, it, when is it released, Shelley? Is it? The is book it releases October 12th, but it's uh, available for pre-order now. And you know, pre-orders are super important for authors. They are super important. She's the author of this great book uh, that I've had the privilege of having an advanced look at, Sit Down to Rise Up. Um, and what I, I love about it, Shelley, is how deeply personal it is and, and so relevant for people, particularly in our society, to get a real sense of what it means to come to uh, mindfulness practice, to come to meditation and to come into your life more fully is my way of saying it. That's beautiful. Uh, yeah, yeah, but we're both uh, Shambhala uh, Publications authors. So welcome, welcome. Awesome to have you. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Can I, I'm gonna launch this in with something. So sure. there's a quote in the beginning of your book. I think it's in the intro that I, I love this. I thought it'd be a great place for us to start. You, you say uh, very directly to the reader, the secret to life is this, show up. Mm -hmm. yeah. Tell us what you mean by that. Well, I mean, through trial and error and really just through my own um, experiences in life, every single thing that I've ever started or failed at or been successful at or learned from um, every chance I've ever taken and every, I think, meaningful and impactful, um, you know, whether it's a, a movement or just a, a, a gesture of kindness that I've been able to put out into the universe started with that simple premise of just showing up, showing up consistently, yeah. showing up unapologetically, showing up as whole as we can be in that mm -hmm. moment 
and understanding that really just by showing up the best version of the world starts with the best version of us showing up. Ooh, I love that. That it, it's about what I would call presencing. Yes. Just exactly. really, you know, but not perfection. No, not I at didn't, all. I didn't hear that in what you said at all. It, yeah. It's, it's, about, it's about being as present as you can be with what is in you and, and around you. Yeah, it's about using the tools that you have in your toolbox currently, right? Yeah. So all of us are born into uh, a different toolbox. Some yep. of us have one screwdriver in that toolbox. Some of us are born with a fancy drill that has like all these different attachments. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you know, like a whole garage filled with tools. Yeah. And uh. we, we need to essentially embrace the tools that we have and understand that we can always essentially just, we can, we can acquire more tools uh, and we can get rid of the old tools. Yeah. Uh, but we've got to understand that we um, can only work with the tools that we have in this moment, right? And yeah. one of the things that um, I write about in the book, actually, and there's a whole chapter uh, that is entitled, Good is Good Enough. And mm. as a type A personality, uh, you know, a person who my entire life has been centered around goals, primarily, right, up until um, I would say my mid-30s. Um, where I was just aspiring to, you know, get to a certain position or title, yes. obtain a certain salary, get a certain honor or an accolade or award or what have you. And when you kind of get there and you still feel empty, you're like, you know, like in that great movie with Jack Nicholson, like, is this as good as it gets? You know, yes. you ask yourself that question. And so what I learned is that um, at the expense of extreme you know, burnout and unfulf being unfulfilled, I learned that I can only do the best I can in this moment. Uh, yeah. And I had to learn that the hard way. And that my best, my best in this moment is good enough. I don't have to be the best. I just have to the do the best. best, the best, right. right, right. I don't have to be the best. I have to do just do my best. Yes, there's a difference. Yes, a big difference. What do you what did you learn? You said you learned, you know, all of this. Yeah. If you had to boil it down, because I know we could probably talk about these things for a long, long time for sure. each of us, what we've had to learn. Sure. What do you think really jumps out as to what was the key lesson that helped you learn to show up? Well, I, the truth is, is that I wouldn't wish this on anyone. <laughs> mm. um, but basically, I had a chronic, um, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune condition. I woke up one morning due to all the, the, the stress that I was enduring for such a long time. And I woke up and I was blind. I couldn't mm. see. Uh, and I didn't know if I would get my eyesight back. And I didn't know why I suddenly woke up into, into darkness. Yeah. And I was then diagnosed with an autoimmune condition called uveitis, which is uh, the leading cause of blindness in people under 40. And I was 27 years old at the time with oh, a toddler's wow. son. And I was in the middle of a divorce, not surprisingly, mm. uh, in terms of stress level, right? Yeah. Um, moving into sort of being uh, and adapting to being a single mom and suddenly also dealing with this chronic issue, uh, yeah. which took a while to diagnose. And fortunately, I was able to 
uh, treat the symptoms, I was able to get my eyesight back. I still, this is an issue, a chronic issue that I still deal with today. And I'm actually visually impaired in my left eye. Um, so it's not something that just like went away. Right. right but it right. is something that, that I, in that moment, I realized when, when a doctor tells you like, you could be blind by the time you're 40. Wow. You, you just, after you can, you get through the initial shock and you really sit with that and you process it, you suddenly realize all of the little things that you've taken for granted in your life, like the outline of the wrinkles in your mother's face mm. and you know the, the, the way that your son's eyelashes catch the, the, the sunshine. And it sounds you know, almost cliche and sort of cheesy, but no. it, that, was the, that was the impetus. You know, that was the wake up call. That was the moment where I was like, what am I doing with my life? And, you know, and it, again, it wasn't like, Eureka, I'm going to sell all my belongings and go right. live this completely separate life. It took me, it was trial and error. It was kind of like the universe kept trying to tell me something again and again yes. and again. And it was only like, finally, probably in the 10th push uh, out of the nest that I finally was like, oh, uh, okay, I get it. I understand what I'm supposed to be doing now. Yeah. yeah. I, I have to say, you said it, it's almost cliche. It, it, it can ring that way if we stay at the level of abstraction, right? Like concepts, like you got to mm -hmm. let go, you got to, you know, embrace what is. But the moment that it gave me chills, to be honest, when you talked about the wrinkles framing your mom's face. Yeah. It's that it's that that is clear that you dropped into and showed up to that moment. And I think that's that that speaks volumes, right? And that's not cliche because it's so identifiable. Mm. It's and and so beautiful. And so and I think that's what's so cool honestly about your book is that it really you give lots of examples of that degree of specificity of the truth of your own experience and there's so much out there particularly in the mindfulness world these days right you know you me and a lot yeah. of people publishing stuff and it's great it's really yeah. great and yet we need that specificity as to what it really is like to show up right right and so I, I think that yeah I just wanted to say that just honor that thank you thanks for that and and yeah. I want to honor the relatability of, you know, stuff that I've read that you've written. Mm. Uh, one of the things, and you'll, you'll find this really funny, but um, the first time I saw your name was actually in Mindful Magazine. Yeah. And then that's how I found out about your book and kind of went back, went backwards. But you, you did uh, an article that was based on the book and you talked about using the F-bomb with your daughter. <laughs> You had to bring that up, didn't you? Well, I, I mean, I love that because it's so, again, it's relatable. You yes. know, I feel, I find in this space that so many teachers, especially I would say um, the teachers who've, who, you know, kind of really were steeped more in the wisdom of the ancient traditions who yeah. had the luxury of like, the privilege, I should say, of not necessarily like ever living in the real world. Do you know what yes. I mean? Yes. Not that they don't live in the real world, but like, right. 
like I went to an ashram and I was there for 20 years and then right. I came back and now I'm a mindful and I'm a meditation right. teacher. And we need those individuals because they like laid the foundation. Yes. You know, they were the depth that we yes. can now build the breadth upon, right? That's right. Deserves so, deep respect. Deserves deep, deep respect. Res I yes. mean, they're my core teachers, right? I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for their experience. But yeah. I also often find that you know, it's, it's, some of them are very hard to relate to because like, how do you ask a question about, you know, your, your job that is, feels like a hamster wheel sitting in a cubicle day after day, um, or juggling that and, you know, three kids and a chronic disease and a financial issue, you know, there's just, there's so much overwhelm. And yes. so when I find a teacher that I find is, that is relatable, that can just, you know, poke fun at themselves and also say like, Hey, I'm not perfect. I, I F up all the time. I, I <laughs> F up as well. Yes. Yes. Right. Yes. I, I'm so glad. I'm, I'm so glad you're saying that because I have deep respect for those core teachers that did go and study and train. Maybe they were monastics, maybe they weren't, but they had a depth of training and experience. I just, I haven't had, and and yet I think there's a value also to being able to give out your experience of mindfulness, meditation practice, while you are still deeply embedded in the world of daily life, particularly the daily life of the people that are going to be reading our books or you know hearing right. us speak and whatnot. Now I like to I like to you know what I know of the historical Buddhas life is that, you know he, he was born a prince you know with all mm -hmm. these luxuries mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and he decided in whatever way that the conditions were right that he was going to go over the wall and leave the palace and go off and pursue the truth yeah of how to end suffering and i i wanted to write something i think i actually did write something and send it to mindful at one point but it had it and i get it you know it's a secular publication right you can't sure. have B buddha references in it and and it was going to be titled something like uh being buddha with one exception like not going over the wall staying in the 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 worldly air quotes life yeah yeah and, and learning to practice and be and present learn the presencing learn the showing up within the context where there's a lot of suffering every day there's a lot of stuckness mm, there is there yes. sure is yeah. yeah yeah there definitely is but i i'm i'm so happy that there's you know just such a wide range of tools that are becoming more and more available to the everyday person, right? Yeah. That we're destigmatizing um, meditation, certainly mental health, uh, the need for incorporating self-care into our life on a daily basis. Yes. Um, you know, I, I never thought that I would be, you know, able to have a conversation about self-care with a farmer in Iowa. And yet it did happen. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah. So self-care. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Like micro practices, talking about meditation and, or breathe. We didn't call it meditation. We called it um, just um, breathing, breathing exercises, yeah. micro practices, 
And that clicked, you know, like, yes. right. That clicked for, for a person who has the, this concept or this notion of what, what meditation is. And it's interesting because, you know, I think when we live, like you and I are in this space. And so for us, it's like, it's really interesting to step out of the space every mm -hmm. once in a while to, it, it's kind of like a slap in the face that <laughs> gives you the reality check that you need, you know? And uh, I'll never forget, I was in Southside Chicago and, you know, cause I do a lot of work with, uh, with uh, individuals who are affected by gun violence, gun violence survivors and victims' families. And so I was in Southside Chicago, I was doing a weekend retreat um, and you can imagine, so I'm this little five foot two short, that's redundant, but five foot two little <laughs> white Jewish girl walking yeah. into to a room filled with primarily, you know, African-American women who uh, lost their children to gun yeah. violence. Uh, yeah. And it's it's not a space that I'm uh, not familiar with because I certainly have been in the, those spaces way too many times than I care to mention. Yeah. And I walk in and as soon as I say the word meditation, somebody invariably in the back who doesn't know me or doesn't know anything about me will scream out something like that's devil's work yes right yes and it takes a while to get people to understand that the contemplative practice of prayer yes is meditation and that yes. you know that moses would meditate and jesus you know meditated yes. and and allah meditated and you know baal shem tov and all of these kind yes. of higher, you know, powers that we, that we read about, that we look up to, that we pray to, um, yes. all had a contemplative practice and or, we just called it something different. Or even people that were not religious affiliated or contemplatives like scientists. Yes. There, are, there are very, you know, Albert Einstein had his mm. own form of meditation. Sure. Definitely. And, and, and when we broaden the frame enough, it's like, it's very inclusive. Very. And it's all about not creating these separations. And perhaps why you do a lot of that work, because it's about, you know, not creating separations. Right. Definitely. Definitely. Especially in a world where I feel like we're more separated than we've ever been. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Can you can you speak to the because I, I don't know a lot about it. I've heard a bit about it. The pandemic of love sure. movement that you <laughs> that you sparked. I, I'm so yeah. excited to hear what what this is about. Well, so pandemic of love is actually it's a in, in the simplest terms, it's a it's a global community based um, volunteer led uh, and very much grassroots mutual aid organization. And so just to give you uh, or, or your listeners, you know, an understanding of what mutual aid actually is, is um, mutual aid is essentially a closed uh, community that is built on the premise that every human being in that community, regardless of their socioeconomic status, has something that they need. Uh -huh. And every single human being has something that they can offer. Mm. And that we can create this sort of redistribution of wealth. And let's define wealth very loosely here, right? Because uh -huh. not just money, but wealth in time and, you know, yes. food and uh, yes. presence, et cetera. Right. And so we can create this redistribution of wealth 
that eventually creates this equilibrium, this equity that is really true equity where every single person in that community can achieve enough. Mm. And one of my mantras is that I lean on often is that enough is a feast. Ooh, I love that. And that if every person on this planet had enough, what could we accomplish, right? If, if yes. you look at just the traditional pyramid of Maslow's hierarchy, what if yeah. everybody actually had their basic needs met? What yes. would humanity look like, right? Beautiful. Yeah. I, I think it's cool that you, so where is the status of that? Is this an yeah. ongoing thing? Yeah, that, yeah that's growing? Yeah. Very much. So I started Pandemic of Love around my kitchen table in South Florida. I was still living in Broward County at the time. I started it in March of 2020, right like at the beginning of our state uh, sheltering in home. And I was already um, a community organizer and had a, um, you know, a community of over 15,000 meditators that uh, basically would meet on Sunday mornings. Uh, in South Florida. And I'd been doing that for five years. So I grew this community. I knew I had this platform and we had been as a closed community uh, enacting mutual aid for years uh, uh -huh. at different times of the year, throughout the year, when, when somebody in our community needed something as simple as a ride to meditation at the beach on Sunday mornings, somebody else would, you know, go into that spreadsheet and and pick and pick that up and say, okay, I'll give you that lift. So it was even as simple as something like that, right? But it yeah. could have also been something much more grandiose, like like monetary assistance or medical assistance, et cetera. And so um, I recognized very quickly that uh, there was a lot of fear that was bubbling up in our community as there was everywhere in the world. And that many people were really genuinely worried about how am I supposed to shelter in home when I can't even like afford groceries? Like who's yes. going to feed me? Who's going to feed my kids? I rely on tips or hourly wages, or I'm an Uber driver, whatever, you know, like I can't actually um, afford to shelter in home, but I have no choice at this point. Yes. And so um, I realized that a lot of people in our community had the ability and they had enough, definitely more than enough, yeah. Uh, to be able to uh, to create that redistribution of wealth. So I I just, again, not being a, like really a technologically savvy person, I was like, okay, how do I achieve this beyond the Google spreadsheet? Because I want to also protect people's identities. And so I just went to that Google, share, that Google Drive platform again and created two Google forms. One was mm. called Give Help and one was called Get Help. Super wow. simple. Yes. Yeah, and the forms were really, really simple. They maybe had six or seven questions, like, what do you need help with? You know, very specific, like utility bill, uh, phone bill, groceries for the week, et cetera, et cetera. And it just, the, if you were a person in need, you were able to share, here's what I need. Uh -huh. And then if you were a person who wanted to donate, you could share how, how often you wanted to donate, how much you wanted to donate. And, and if you wanted to also like volunteer in some capacity. Um, and I put those two links up thinking that really it would only serve my meditation community, but also my community at large in South Florida. Yeah. And I was shocked when I woke up the next morning and pun intended, the forms went viral. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Proving that 
not only diseases go are, are vi can be viral, but also love and kindness and hope and a lot of really positive things in the world as well. And um, I started getting these requests from every corner of the world uh, from people saying, this is really cool. How do I start a chapter where I am? And so wow. I started to replicate the forms and I realized very quickly, and this is where my 20 years in corporate America kicked in, you know, I was able to say, well, wait a minute, let me just take a step back and think about how I can, things could be replicable, scalable, exportable, and how do I capture data in yes. such a way, right? And how do we share best practices and build this like really large global community that still has hyper-local components? Yes. And uh, so fast forward to today, uh, we're 14 months into Pandemic of Love's existence. And we have matched uh, close to 1.7 million people as of this recording. Wow. So we've matched 1.7 million donors with people in need. Wow. And we have, they amongst themselves have transacted over $55 million in 14 wow. months. Uh, we have over 280 chapters around the world in 16 countries, and we have over 2,000 volunteers. That says something, right, about what people are truly about when they're given a vehicle yeah. to show up to. Exactly, exactly. That's super cool. It does, but I think it also goes back to a question that you had earlier for me, which is the first question, showing up. Yeah. Why is showing up so important? So this, you know, in that moment that I saw the fear bubbling up, Right. Mm -hmm. I was, I also had a lot of concerns and fear. And, yeah. you know, of course, we were all in this very weird, ambiguous loss phase. You know, my son was in high school. He was not going to have prom or graduation. You know, there was that yeah. drama. Um, and we have a choice in those moments to, you know, lean into love over fear. Mm. And, and I think people, might say, well, oh God, Shelly, you know, that's too difficult. Like, how do you, if you're like really shaking your boots, you're afraid you're in that fight, flight, freeze mode, you know, that we're biologically just inherently trained. Our bodies are trained to, to get into that mode and default into that mode. And you know this, you know, like, no, you can, we can evolve humans, yes. sentient beings in general, but definitely human beings with our neuroplasticity, of course, we can evolve beyond fight, flight, freeze to yes. what, of course, there's been a lot of research on tendon befriend. I call it empathy action. So yes. when I recognize in the moment that I am just physiologically, you know, my body is like starting to react. I get the butterflies in my stomach, my heart, my chest is pounding. I default into that, you know, worry mode. I, I just recognize it. I pause for a moment and I say, okay, how can I come from a place of love? Yes. How do I come from a place of love? And that's really how Pandemic of Love started because I was like, okay, the way I can come from a place of love is to be of service to the people in my community that are in need right now. Yes. And also be in service to the people that are not in need because they have a desire to volunteer, to connect, to be of service, but there's no, there's no way for them to do that. Yeah. I have, I have to say, I, I, you likely wouldn't have heard, heard this yet. Um, there's a, a word that I've been playing with for a long, long time. 
and that is my current writing, you know, that I consider to be a verb form of love. And mm -hmm. I call it prizing other oh, people. Wow. And, and I make a distinction between that and like praise. And there's tons yeah. of research to support that, right? And I, 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 you referenced Maslow's hierarchy of needs earlier, right? That we have these basic needs and then they, they as you, you know, hunger, thirst and safety and then connection, belongingness, yeah. all of that. Mm -hmm. It's like at any given point, and this is what I think your, your movement, this organization's about, everyone's got a Maslow's hierarchy behind them, mm. inside of them, any given moment. When we're willing to show up enough that we are taking care of ourselves and recognizing our own needs, then we can get curious, well, what about them? And we can see behind the surface right. to the prize, which isn't about some worldly attainment or a, scoring a goal or a bank account amount. It's about, it's about that person is trying to meet their needs. How can I let them know I see that? Yeah. How can I show up to that in some way? And I call that prizing. Love other it. People. Yes. That's so great. Yes. I and, love and, that. and I'm so inspired. I've had chills multiple times, Shelly, since we've been talking, honestly, because hearing what you did with that, very, this very simple Google Docs and taking the platform that you had and matching need with people that wanted to show up to loving, prizing, you know, it, it's like, what does the world need more? Mm. Than, than that kindness, that loving, that prizing, that not allowing the separations, the gulfs between us to widen. Yes. Not allowing the fight, flight, freeze brain of fear or whatnot or anger to, you know, to rule. Right. Well, I think part of that is one of the one of the things I'm proudest of for with Pandemic of Love, because a lot of times mutual aid works where like like a traditional nonprofit. And really, I like to say that we're a nonprofit disruptor in mm. that, um, you know, we have no overhead. There's no fees involved. Like it's a direct connection between the donor and the person in need so that the donor actually needs to reach out to the person in need and have a conversation and make them feel seen and heard. Yes. It's not, it's not like people Ooh. send money to Pandemic of Love and then Pandemic of Love distributes it to They have to go directly to the person. Right. So what happens is, is that we act as almost like caseworkers. We basically take in these applications from people in need. We vet them because we have a fiduciary responsibility, of course, to the donor. We make sure they're real people. And, and then we help them um, organize their thoughts, because they're very much at that point, if you're, if you are $6,000 behind on rent, or you just got an eviction notice, or your lights were turned off, or, you know, I, I could just tell you so many stories from the last sure. 14 months of people's needs. But if you're in that mode, you know, you are not when somebody says to you even calls you up on the phone and says, Hi, I'm Joe, what do you need help with? You don't even know how to answer that because you don't even know how to begin right. to answer that, right? You're right. like, so overwhelmed, you're working yes your surge capacity has been like, like through the right. roof. Right. And so basically, you know, what we do is we help them, our volunteers call the, the individuals when we vet them and we say, let's help you organize what you need the most right now. Like, are you yes. okay with food? Okay, great. You know, do you, is your phone about to be turned off or, you know, can we, are you about to be evicted? Like, let's look through those basic needs that you have. Yeah. 
and yeah. organize them and then attach a number to it so that when you when Bob reaches out to you or whoever reaches out to you they can basically say you know what do you need and you'll have a response to them and the beautiful thing about it is that there are human connections yes. that are being made every single time we make a match. And so we've got donors that, yeah, we call them drive-by donors. They're like people who have that initial exchange and then send a Venmo or a PayPal and right. be done with it. But we also have individuals that have been literally transacting on a weekly or monthly basis with the same family for 14 months now wow. and have developed relationships. And so, um, you know, one of the words that has been, um, that I've been like toying with and that I've been leaning into is the phrase, uh, the, the word proximity. Mm. And a friend of mine, Shelly Zalis, who um, runs the female quotient said, it's like not a friendship, it's proximity ships. And it's the like ability to, for us to actually meet somebody, have spend a moment, like if you're a donor, right? not just walking in somebody else's shoes, but literally looking through the world with their lens. This is a person that you most likely never would have met, never would have right. conversed with, that might be even in your same town, but they may very well be. Like we had this great story that I share in the book of a woman um, named Eileen uh, uh, in New York, a liberal New York hippie Jew, that's what she called yeah. herself, yeah, who yeah. spent her, her life as a social worker and was, was, was very much on the front lines of, um, you know, basically in the 1980s working for gay rights and working um, to uh, just stop the discrimination against people who had HIV and AIDS. And she was matched with a woman in Mobile, Alabama, who yeah. had never been outside of Alabama. Right. And was a single mom and has this frame, this lens with which she views the world, yes. you know, and suddenly she's meeting a Yankee snowflake from New York, <laughs> <laughs> who's a right. Jew, you right. know, and it's like, it rocks your world because you're like, wait a minute, hold on, like, right. this person who I have all these preconceived notions about is going to help me. Yes. And on the flip side, you know, it rocks Eileen's world too, because she's like, well, wait a minute, like this woman who voted for somebody that I am completely opposed to yes. and am, am, you know, infuriated by um, and offended by and her family, you know, she's got a Confederate flag sticker on her, on her truck. Right. Like right. how, how could this ever work? Right. And yet, and yet they became friends. They yes. became friends because they were able to kind of put aside all of those differences through proximity. Yes. They were able to connect, have a conversation and see the humanity in each yes. other. Lots of P words, proximity, yeah. presence. Yes. And I got to throw you know, the prizing. You yes. Know, it's like really seeing into one another and seeing that Maslow's pyramid that yes. is, is the same for everybody. Yes, exactly. That is so powerful. It, it's obviously... I think to both of us, and I think to many others, this is the antidote. This is the way forward. This is it. This is it. I, I call it like true compassionate dialogue mm -hmm. where we meet the humanity in one another. And it's not a rainbows and unicorns passive thing. No. It's not this, uh, you know, touchy feely thing. 
it takes courage and yes. it, and and willingness to have buttons be hit at times yeah and this is where the mindfulness practice is huge right because yes. then then you don't get sucked into those old patterns and you can see the humanity in the other yeah exactly but you know it's so interesting mitch because i think um it's like I just finished reading this book called A Paradise Built in Hell. Mm. And it's a book about how th through these moments of crisis, whether it's war or fires or earthquakes or whatever, you know, 9-11, for example, that suddenly we all tend to come together and build these like really incredible uh, solutions, if you will, where people can, like, you see the best of humanity, right? The yes. best in humanity. And like, that's how the, um, the Red Cross was formed, for example, right? Or that's yeah. how public hospitals were came to be, you know, she, she kind of like goes through like this history of all these wonderful institutions wow. and organizations that exist, because they were built in, she calls it, you know, hell, basically, yeah. like they were built in really hellacious, mo like horrible moments in, 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 in time. And I just, she asks this one question in the book where um, it just caused me to pause and reflect. And she says, if your neighbor is good enough to feed during a crisis, doesn't it bear the question of like, why weren't they good enough to feed and help before the crisis? And why aren't they good enough to feed and help after the crisis? Yes, yes, that's beautiful. What's the name of that book again? I, I have a to check paradise, that out. Paradise Built in Hell. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So I, I'm mindful of uh, our time. I don't want to have us go too long here, but I, I, I have to, I've learned doing these interviews, I need to keep checking the time <laughs> because I could just keep going, right? Yeah, totally. And, totally. and, and yet, I, in order to try and wrap this up, what would you recommend that? listeners do to start to mm -hmm. in a practical way to really kind of come out of a feeling that they're having having listening to this yeah to actually begin to show up you know what what do you say to yeah. people in these kind of moments well so i'm gonna i'm gonna leave people with two thoughts the first is um it's a you know, Zen parable or a story, or maybe even the Buddha said it, like who knows at this point, because yeah. it's probably been memed so many, like there's been yes. so many. Like, meme, <laughs> memes existed before there were memes, yes. I mean, yes. it could have been attributed to like anybody at this point. So I don't even know like who actually said it. Um, but, but basically there's this notion of like that you can just tend to the part of the garden that you can reach. Yes. Right. So tend to your, the part of the garden, like don't look to at the part of the garden that is like so far away, that could be so daunting, but if you could just make your little patch around you bloom and be beautiful and tend to it, um, that will, uh, that will actually ripple out into the universe. Right. Yes. Uh, and the other thing is, you know, one of the, the key phrases, or again, another mantra that I sort of lean on often is the phrase, if only for today. If only mm. for today, I can show up with this intention or, um, you know, accomplish this one act of kindness, if only for today. And I think that if we start to frame the world incrementally in that kind of, you know, between tending to our garden and just recognizing that even if we just 
look at just this moment in time and just yes. one thing that we can do today, I promise you that that is showing up. The impact yes. is huge. The impact yes. ripples out. And sometimes you don't even know what impact you're actually having in the world, yes. but, but it's there and it, it will eventually reverberate back. Yes. It's, it's that simple and yet can be, can seem to be elusive and yet mm -hmm. that's it. That's yeah. the showing up. That's beautiful. And I, I'm going to give people another action on it's super, you know, obviously we talked about your book. I think it's really an action item people should follow up on. This is a really beautiful book, a really beautiful book. And, and I think people need these personal relatable stories from, you know, from teachers to, to be able to show up more to an intention. So people need to check out, sit down to rise up. You know, it, it's, it's really important. Shelly, thank, thank you, so, you much. so much. Thank you thank so you. much for coming on the show with me. And I would love to do another, like a part two at some point. It would be definitely. awesome. Definitely. Yes. Definitely. Yeah, thank to be continued. Thank you, Shelly. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of The Prize of Possibility. I hope you found things of benefit here. If so, please consider giving this show a positive review. Such feedback is not only great to hear, um, it also really helps elevate the show so that others can find benefit from it. Please stay tuned, more episodes, some great guests on the way so that we can together discover these true life prizes in daily life. Take care.